The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Line Trust, specialist fund managers. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. For the final time this season, welcome to Total Football. We have our World Cup 2018 winners at last, and it is France. Who could have seen that coming before the tournament? Well, we did, actually. Over to six weeks ago, me and Alastair Tweedale. The France seem like likely winners historically. Yes. Yes, hats off to all involved, Alastair, me, and our magical World Cup forecasting algorithm, the true hero of this unforgettable summer. Today, we have a World Cup final to unpick and we'll cast our audio eye over the tournament as a whole. What made it so enjoyable? Which fans had the best songs out in Russia? And was there a power shift back home between two terrestrial broadcasters? But first, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by our columnist and former World Cupper. It's Jamie Carragher. Jamie, how are you? Yes, very good, Tom. On the, the World Cup's finished now. I think it's been a brilliant tournament. So, yes, doing very well. Yeah, France 4, Croatia 2 at the Luzhniki Stadium. A, a fitting finale for what's been a great tournament. What did you make of the final? Did you enjoy watching it? Yes, I mean, I think... There's that much tension in a, in a World Cup final, a Champions League final. There's so much at stake. And you always sort of fear that the fear will take over in players. And it's totally understandable. So I'd never really criticise a big game when it doesn't produce because uh, you can sort of understand where the players are coming from. But I think what, what, a, what a finale to a great tournament, as you said. Lots of goals in it. And I think it just shows what happens when a team opens up against this, this French team. Yes, people say they're not the most eye-catching to watch. But twice in this tournament, they blew teams apart. You look at Croatia and you look at, at Argentina. As soon as the game opens up and there's a little bit of space, they have too, too much pace, and especially in Mbappe. It's a great way to win a tournament, that, isn't it? Like Defend and, until you don't need to so much and, and play on the break. Total vindication for Deschamps, how he's attacked the tournament. Yes, I mean, sometimes you, you look at the players they have on paper and you think, can they be a bit more expressive? They've got so many players there, you, you feel maybe they don't have to be as defensive or think of the opposition first and look to play in the counter-attack. But who can anyone to argue with Deschamps with all he's done? A Euro final two years ago and now a World Cup winner. I think only like, the two other people in Beckenbauer and Zagalo or Brazil who've won it as player and manager. So unbelievable achievement. So there's no way anyone can question anything he does, even though I just have. But, I mean, with the pace they have there, as soon as that game opens up, he knows he can rely on that defence, especially the two centre-backs. Uh, I think of outstanding tournaments and he knows that pace last half an hour 20 minutes of the game he'll kill the opposition off an incredibly eventful game especially given uh, what finals normally serve up let's attack it chronologically we've called this the set piece World Cup before on this podcast so appropriate that the first goal of the game came from a set piece but did Antoine Griezmann con the referee a little bit to win that free kick yes he, he bought the free kick yeah I mean I wouldn't criticise the referee too much you know plays it clever it happened as part of the game. I think it would be difficult for us, certainly, or certainly me as an Englishman, to be too critical because I think some of our players were not too shy in doing certain things in this tournament. If I was a defender, I wouldn't like it if someone just drops to the floor and, and gets a free kick, and I, and I don't. But I think from an English point of view, it's probably in certain games. We, we, we were in, I think Harry Maguire tried to go down and get a penalty in one game. We never got it. You know, so I think it'd be a bit rich for us to start there complaining too much about Griezmann. Superb work from Perisic to equalise for Croatia. He beat Kante as he was closed down in the box, which is quite hard to do, as we've seen uh, throughout this tournament. 
How hard is it if you're Perisic to keep your head in that situation, especially in a final? I think you might be asking the wrong man, me. I didn't score too many, <laughs> too many goals. But what I would say was, I mean, to actually control the ball with that much pressure on you in the box from a set piece, people normally get quite frantic in there and maybe rush a shot, blast it over the bar, do something really quick and rush. But no, he was really composed, just took it to one side. I mean, what a strike. And, and maybe Manchester United fans are looking on that and thinking, wow, I wish uh, maybe Jose Mourinho would have got that transfer over the line that he was, he was looking to do 12 months ago. Yeah, he's had a very impressive tournament overall. Moving on to the penalty incident, Jamie, the decision seemed extremely harsh, the VAR handball. As a former defender, what did you make of that? I thought it was harsh. Yes, I did. I don't think it was as the worst decision I've ever seen in my life, the way I was sort of when I was watching it and some of the, the people on TV talking about it. But yes, I, I fell for him. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of VAR. I think it's been good in this World Cup and... I think I mentioned it on social media when it happened, when it, it all kicked off about VAR. VAR doesn't make the decision. The referee still made the decision. Now, do I think the referee made a mistake? Yes. I think it was a harsh penalty to give. There's people talking about it getting flicked on by the fella in front. I don't even actually think the, the player in front of him actually touches it. But he was really close to him. No, I mean, I, I think it was a harsh decision. But if the referee's made the decision, OK, VAR's involved, said so go and have a look at it. Some people do think it was a penalty. So, you know, OK, go and have a look at it. But... For the referee then to give it, I think you'd be you'd be really disappointed if you were a, a Croatian player. But this this talk as well, I saw a half time on TV about it's not a deliberate handball. I know the rule says that, but the rule is just nonsense because no one deliberately handballs it. Ninety five percent of handballs that are given for penalties are not deliberate. Why would you deliberately handball the ball? You wouldn't do that. So it's just a stupid thing when I hear people talk about that it wasn't deliberate. It doesn't matter if it was deliberate or not. It's whether it was deemed handball in terms of stopping something, ball being in a natural position, being outside of your body. So, yes, those things didn't quite happen. So that's why I think it was harsh. Yeah, the wording of the handball rule does seem odd. Do you think with VAR and all the super slow-mo replays it brings in, is it time to have a look at how we define handball in the rule book? Everything just looks so much worse when it's slowed down that much. No, I agree. I think when the referee was looking at it, VAR, it did look as if he was looking at slow motion replays and things can look worse. Yes, I mean, the wording in, in the rule, deliberate handball, it's just, as I said, no one deliberate handball. Now, I don't know what the actual word you say for or what you say, really. And then I heard some people saying, well, just handball's handball. Well, that, that can't be right. You can't just have, have people who are looking to cross a ball or get a shot at it just try and kick it at someone's hand and it's a penalty. So you can't have that situation where anything that hits someone's hand it's handball. I actually think the wording of the rule is wrong, but I think in the in the scheme of things, I think most people have an, an idea what what we deem as as handball for a penalty. You know, ball hand above your head, outside from your body, really wide, trying to block something with your arms uh, out wide, stretched out wide. So I think if you've got your arms by your side and the ball hits you on the hand, it's not handball. I think uh, that's pretty obvious. And, and as I said, no one, virtually nobody, uh, deliberately handballs uh, the ball. So that's just a stupid word within the rule. Yeah, I can only really think of one, which is Luis Suarez on the line in the, yeah, in the exactly. 2010 World Cup. Uh, Paul Pogba scored the third for France, generally had an excellent game. I thought he kept finding Mbappe with those beautiful balls into space on the right. Is there anything Jose Mourinho can take from how well he's played in this tournament to, to get a bit more out of him at Man United? To be honest, I look at it a bit different. I don't think it's... People might say it's Jose Mourinho's job to get more at ease as manager, but I think Jose Mourinho will be looking at that and thinking that they're the type of performances I want, really. I don't, it's down to Paul Pogba to get the best out of Paul Pogba. 
Uh, not Jose Mourinho, you know, he's come from a huge fee. I think there's a lot of talk where his actual position is in midfield, and people always say he wants to be part of a three in midfield. But he didn't really play as part of a three in midfield in this tournament. Yes, Matuidi was tucked in from the left, but it wasn't a real conventional three-man midfield where Pogba had this freedom to go wherever he wanted. And he didn't play with freedom, and he had a disciplined role, and that's why we're talking about Paul Pogba performing better, because he played a disciplined role, and now and again he's done some special things with his passing, he got a goal today. But it wasn't the Pogba that we sometimes see at Man United, where he seems to just float all over the pitch, and you don't really have an idea of what position he's supposed to be in or what he's supposed to be doing. I'm sure if you ask Jose Mourinho, does he want this disciplined Pogba that he saw in the World Cup, he'll say yes. Yeah, fair enough. Perhaps one thing that could help Pogba is Jose Mourinho buying Kylian Mbappe. He's just looked so dangerous in the final, took his goal beautifully as well. I know we knew about him going into the World Cup, but has just how good he's been surprised you? No, he's a superstar, isn't he? He's the next one, I think, after you know the main two we talk about. I mean, it's just the pace. I mean, we, we all remember Thierry Henry from the Premier League, how quick he was. He, he looks actually quicker, maybe at a higher level than Thierry was, I would imagine, at, uh, at that age. What about Hugo Lloris for the second goal for Croatia? Did, didn't end up mattering that much in the end. But what was Lloris even trying to do there? Uh, he just tried to be a little bit clever. You see keepers do it more often than not. You get away with it. I have this little thing with Lloris. I, I really like him as a goalkeeper. He seems to make mistakes in big games. Uh, really, just the games I remember of Tottenham against Chelsea or against Arsenal. Liverpool United, just, I don't know for whatever reason, it was a mental thing or what in the big games, but he, he's won the World Cup tonight. I think it'll be the last thing on his, on his mind, but he certainly would have gone away. Of course, the size with that one, it's just fortunate that he, he had a few goals in advance, and that, I think, is the reason why he tried it. Certainly for France, the final was more about their attacking talent than what they did at the back, but the defence has been hugely impressive all tournament. Which of the players back there have stood out for you for France? Varane, I think he's, he's the next one. I think for years we've, you look at uh, centre-backs, certainly the Spanish ones in Piquet and Ramos, not just what they do at international, what they do at club level year in year out to Barcelona, Real Madrid. I think Varane now, he's, he's the new one on the block. He's going to be the best. If he's not now, he's a Champions League winner uh, this season, World Cup winner. I think he's, he's now the, maybe the number one centre-back in world football now. We don't hear too much of him. Interviews really, or hear him speak, or I don't really see too much of him but the job he does the power he's got the pace as well he's, in a, he's an outstanding individual him and the fellow next to him I think that's one of the main reasons why France have won this World Cup And where now for France as a team they, they're the younger squad than England at this tournament can they go on to dominate the international game for years to come? I think it's difficult to dominate at international level I think the, the Germans certainly Brazil will be, will be back in, in the next World Cup you've got the Euros next I think Belgium and England will be looking at that as well, considering how well they've done in this World Cup. And I think we'll uh, fancy our chance to have another good run as well. But uh, France, I mean, just look at the pace and the power of the team. They will be uh, very difficult to stop. As I think England saw, I think, about 12 months ago on a friendly away of France. The pace and, and power was just too much. Did the best team win the tournament in the end? Difficult to want that, really. I mean, I, I think I, I really enjoyed watching Belgium. It's difficult to say anything against Croatia. I thought we were really good today, really good against England. So, yeah, I think a Belgian-France final probably would have been the one. And whoever could have won that, you'd have to say, OK, maybe the team. And finally, Jamie, what was your favourite moment from the tournament as a whole, taking England out of it? I'd have to say Ronaldo's free kick. Very early in the tournament. I just felt that that set the, the tone for the whole tournament. And a lot of the times the group games are not great to watch. In tournaments, it took a while to get going. But that game being so early, in the tournament, just set the total for it. 3-3 with two heavyweights coming up 
against each other, the European champions in Spain, or Ronaldo scoring a hat-trick. I think it just uh, that game and that goal, I think, just set off the, uh, the World Cup. Good stuff. We'll remember it for a very long time indeed. Thank you very much for joining us today and during the tournament, Jamie. Thank you. Our favourite member of the Telegraph Sport family, Jim White, is back home now from Russia and with me to assess the tournament as a whole. Jim, there was a lot of talk during the tournament that this has been one of the best World Cups for as long as most people can remember. It felt to me that that died off a little bit in the last couple of weeks. When the dust settles, where will history rank this World Cup? I think it needed a good final. I think it needed a dramatic, exciting final, and we got that. Slightly one-directional in terms of the result, but the drama was still there, and that was necessary. I think because of that final, because so often they're a bit of an anticlimax, the final, that has really put the icing on the, on the cake that this was a great tournament. The best I can remember since France 98, I would say. Maybe the best ever. World Cups tend to be snapshots of a moment in time for things like football tactics and, and how managers approach games. They can sometimes set the tone as well a little bit for the next few years in the club game. What trends from Russia do you think will be adopted by Premier League managers next season? Uh, I definitely think Glenn Hoddle's love train description of corners is going to be uh, the default mechanism. Lining up um, along from the centre spot, putting all your big men in a tight line and then splitting as the ball comes in. It does depend on a really good crosser. So Kieran Trippier was uh, essential to that, but it really worked for England. And I noticed the French did it in the final as well, which suggests that a lot of people have noted that that is a really good way of doing two things, confusing the opponents who really, the only way to respond is zonal marking and zonal marking never works as we know. And secondly, it does encourage people to grapple with you and therefore win penalties. It worked for England and I, I can really see that happening in the in the Premier League in the new season. What weird universe are we in where France are now taking tactics from, from the English? It all seems extremely <laughs> strange to me. Uh, spoiler alert for tomorrow's newspaper, Jim. You had Mbappe as your player of the tournament in our big roundup. We asked all our writers in stores tomorrow morning, Monday. Who pushed him close in your thinking uh, for player of the tournament? Well, uh, Luka Modric was absolutely superb uh, for Croatia, particularly in the second half against England. He 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 really drove them forward. Paul Pogba for France was uh, excellent, um, but not just in the final, actually. Um, I thought he was great. So was N'Golo Conte, though he had a terrible final, um, so maybe slipped slightly from the pedestal. I also liked uh, Rakitic and Perisic from Croatia. They had that lovely combination of determination and skill. And if you can get that, you're not going to go far wrong. Luka Modric, of course, winning the Golden Ball, uh, the official FIFA award for best player in the tournament. We knew about him in advance, but who's gone from relative unknown in this tournament to earning themselves a big money transfer after? i tell you who I really like, Tom. He does play for Barcelona, so how unknown he might be, I'm not sure. But I, I thought Yerry Mina, the, uh, the Colombia centre-back, really enhanced his reputation. He's a big lad and an incredible threat at set pieces, corners. You know, he'd look great at the back of one of those trains charging in and and, and causing disruption. I think he scored three goals. Um, isn't really rated at Barcelona. I don't think he's going to get into their first team in any time 
soon. But he's played only three or four games for them. So I can really see him getting a move to the Premier League. And I think he'd be a great success here. What was the best game you saw in person, Jim? Oh, it, I had some great games. L- never underestimate Schadenfreude. I thought Germany against uh, South Korea was hilarious. I also saw Belgium against Brazil, uh, which was magnificent. But without doubt, France-Argentina, what a game. Lead fluctuating, brilliant goals. Di Maria's goal, Pavard's goal. It was just incredible. What's it like in the press box for matches like that? Do people start losing their discipline a little bit and, uh, and jumping up and down? <laughs> They say, I mean, it's just ridiculous at a game like that because also you've got to get a piece out, you know. <laughs> so you you start saying, oh, Argentina have uh, proven everybody wrong. Oh, no, they haven't. France are winning. Oh, no, they're back in it. Oh, Argentina. Oh, God, oh, I'll give up. It, it, you know, it is it is incredible. You just want to watch what's going on. And um, my word, we were served up some buttes in this uh, in this tournament. Yeah. What about the fans, Jim? Who did you encounter uh, who was most fun? Oh, it, it was the South Americans tournament. There was a there was a visa issue that South Americans didn't require a visa to get into Russia. Europeans, and I'm not sure if this is due to kind of sanctions and so on. Europeans needed a visa, and you got a visa if you had a match ticket, which meant that no Europeans were travelling without match tickets. The South Americans were coming in huge numbers and just seeing what they could pick up when they were there, seeing if they could get, you know, just enjoying the atmosphere around it. 65,000 Colombians, the, the Mexicans, everywhere you went, there was a Mexican. Quite incredible, the uh, Brazilians. But the Argentinians were, I think, the noisiest and the most demonstrative uh, bunch of fans. The, the look of sheer astonishment on the faces of a bunch of Russians who were waiting for a bus when I managed wrongly, as it turned out, to get on a fan bus that was going uh, to a stadium full of Colombians. The look of sheer astonishment when the doors opened to this bus stop full of Russians, uh, to this chanting, bouncing bunch of Colombians in a bus, uh, I think is going to live with me for a long time. Lovely stuff. Was there anything that you were disappointed by in this tournament, Jim, either on or off the pitch? Quite disappointed by the goalkeeping. I mean, today we saw it again, didn't we? I mean, yeah, there were some fantastic saves, but there were an awful lot of mis- mishaps and, and mistakes. Uh, Loris is being the latest one. The, the Uruguay keeper uh, in the quarterfinal against France. You know, some really, really big howlers. Jordan Pickford uh, aside. You see, even Subasic, who I thought was the best goalkeeper of the tournament, he didn't look right in the final. He, he seemed to be kept on being caught out of position. I'm being very harsh here, but um, I don't think it was a tournament that, that enhanced goalkeeping. Was this your first time in Russia, Jim? I went in 2008 to the Champions League final in um, Moscow, and I'm told things have changed considerably since then. Uh, you know, the last 10 years, there's been a huge growth in consumerism. I mean, if you're being very cynical, uh, you would say that Putin has bought off the middle classes by allowing them to have iPhones. But a bit like China in, in, in that way. And there, there has been a, a, a huge increase in consumerism. And uh, I wasn't expecting that because when I went in 2008, it, it didn't seem as modern a place then as it does now. Any lessons for Qatar from how Russia, Russia handled the tournament? Just give everyone an iPhone. Is that the solution? <laughs> 
Well, it'd be quite good if they had a bit of rain like Russia managed to uh, put on uh, on occasions. I don't think they're going to get that in Qatar. I mean, in many ways, this is a very different tournament for the one that uh, we had in Qatar, partly because it was all over the country. You know, you've got a real vision of Russia. You know, yes, there's a kind of FIFA bubble. Yes, the stadiums all look similar, but the towns were very different. You know, Ekaterinburg was very different from St. Petersburg. Sochi was very different from Moscow. You got a real sense that this was a vast, broad and different country, whereas it's all going to happen in Doha, isn't it? All all the stadiums are going to be within within easy reach of the capital. I think it's going to be very difficult. I mean, one thing they will have learned from the Russians, and I'm sure they will pull off, is that organisationally, uh, Russia was magnificent, and I'm sure it will be in Qatar. But I don't think it will have the same kind of cultural heft uh, that the Russia World Cup did have. You wrote about this last week, Jim, about the culture shock of being out there in Russia and then coming back to England. How had the national mood changed in the time you were away? Well, it had changed just simply visibly in the number of Cross of St. George flags that were up. You know, we'd seen this in previous World Cups, that in the build-up to the World Cup, there were a huge number of flags. Everyone had them on their um, car and so on, and then quietly and embarrassed uh, sort of folded them away before we even got to the knockout stages. This time, people were a bit more reticent about that. There weren't the flags around the place. I come back, people have been painting mini roundabouts in, uh, in the St. George's Cross and everywhere there were flags. And just that made me realise that the, the country had been awakened and got behind the team. A very different place from where I left. A final word for England, Jim. They obviously lost the third-place playoff on Saturday. This, this is basically a no-lose scenario for England, though, isn't it? It's good news if you win it, but it won't, you won't be too bothered losing this game, will you? Do you think England will take any particular time to recover from, from losing to Belgium, or is this just one that's forgotten about almost immediately? I think it's forgotten about. I think that uh, we're now looking to the future. We're thinking of where we're going to go from here. And I think that Gareth Southgate realises that this is a moment that only really has lasting resonance if he can build from here. Just remember the last time before this that we got to a uh, World Cup semi-final, we didn't qualify for the next World Cup. So he just getting to the semi-final on its own, he realises ain't enough. He realises this has got to be the start of something. And I feel he may possibly pull it off. I don't want to get too optimistic, though. Yeah, fingers crossed we could have another Euro 92 repeat and, and Harry Kane being brought off as a substitute uh, tragically in his last game for England. So uh, let's, hope, <laughs> let's hope it works out a little bit better than that. Jim, thank you very much for joining us and congratulations on a superb tournament. Thank you so much and you. It's been brilliant. Journalism's coming home. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Telegraph Sport columnist Alan Tyres has consumed this World Cup as nature intended entirely on television and joins us now to discuss how the tournament has been broadcast in the UK on TV. Traditionally, Alan, there was this almost automatic assumption that the BBC was superior is it fair to say that ITV have chipped away at that a little bit at this tournament, especially with its in-studio work? Yeah, I think they've had a really good tournament. While those sort of huge national events like a big England game do feel that the natural home is still the BBC, I think the uh, punditry on ITV has been at least as good and probably better than on the BBC. 
I think the mixture of Ian Wright and Gary Neville, Dixon, Bilic's great signing, I think that worked really well for them. I think Pugach, you know, referees that really well, controls that really well. I think that was excellent. And, you know, some of the most memorable moments of the World Cup have, have been on ITV, actually. And What's been your favourite moment on TV? I think for me, the standout was... Uh, Ian Wright celebrating the England Columbia penalty win. I mean, we were all Ian Wright, and he did it beautifully. And it's, you know, it's impossible. I think for an English person, I I dare say it's impossible not to be carried along with that moment. If you're Scottish or Northern Irish or Welsh, then yeah, I yeah, apologies on behalf of of the na- of the nation of England. It's interesting now that there's almost this second life expected of studio pundits. Like saying that, that Ian Wright thing you mentioned wasn't actually broadcast, was it? It, it was, you know, it was his live reaction to the goal that then found a kind of life on social media and they show it all. Do you think they're being instructed a little bit to, to kind of play it up and ham it up a little bit so it has got a bit of social media currency? Yeah, I mean, that is, that's a very good point. I suppose everything has to exist now, not just in its own form, but in its performative relayed essence. A bit like the people in the uh, box park who are chucking their beer in the air. It's not you're not just enjoying the moment you're kind of you're aware that you're going to be assessed for how you're experiencing the moment and you know obviously they're on TV anyway but there is yeah there's something weird going on about that isn't there about the sort of mixture of behind the scenes and kind of showing off at the same time yeah I think there's there's a performative aspect to it that's quite interesting feels very now doesn't it yeah absolutely Roy Keane presumably just not going in for any of that in any way he's been I've I've come down on the side of being a little bit annoyed by Roy Keane this tournament he's it's too miserable for the World Cup. I think it works well as a counterpoint to Ian Wright, but um, I really enjoyed the bust-up, I guess you'd call it, that they had. Um, I thought it was funny. I thought not everyone is having a wonderful time if England do well at football, and it's it's reasonable to, to have someone express that, I think. Whether he's kind of, again, sort of whether it's a performative thing that he's playing up to a curmudgeonly sort of image of him or whether he... Uh, genuinely did want to rip Ian Wright's head off his body <laughs> at that moment, which is certainly what it looked like. So, yeah, it's, it made for great TV, didn't it? And after all, you know, it is a branch of the entertainment industry. So They, they appear to have make, made up as well afterwards. There was a nice Instagram picture of them both wearing extremely dubious T-shirts, arm rounds each other, Roy Keane doing one of his six smiles of the year as yeah. well. It's, uh, uh, they literally were just talking about it just before I came in the studio. I was watching it and... Um, but Roy Keane did say he did apologise to me afterwards. So complete uh, inability not to have the last word. Just as well. What about outside of the studio? Who have been your favourite commentators and co-commentators? That's an interesting one. I mean, you can always, if you don't know who's co-commentating, if you just look on Twitter on that trending thing and you can see whichever poor person is being coated off at the moment will be. So there was Martin Keown, wasn't it? And obviously uh, Glenn Hoddle. There's something about that role that, you're just a sort of receptacle for everyone's negativity. Um, people seem to like the pundits by and large, or at least sort of have grown, have feel that they have got a relationship with them. Maybe it's because they're seen more the, or something. The studio pundits, yeah, the studio pundits. But the actual, the you know, the Glenn Hoddle role, the obviously Mark Lawrence, and you know, got a huge amount of, in my view, ridiculously over the top hatred for being a bit grumpy about some quite boring football matches. But that role is is to be used as a receptacle for negativity. It's quite interesting. 
So that's why, for instance, Ali McCoist has had a lot of love this tournament, hasn't he? And that makes it even all all the more surprising, really, that people are actually sort of buying into that. And yeah, he certainly plays well with a certain demographic, Ali McCoist. I, I wonder if the, the the hatred towards the co-commentators is this microcosm of how hard it is to do mainstream broadcasting now, because everyone's so used to like an ultra curated life where they just have everything that they want, that they follow the people they want to follow, and they're not interested in you know someone like Lawrenson who's, who's who has got a constituency. There are some people who are enjoying that. Yeah, uh, and, you know, there's lots of people who think, oh, uh, you know, that guy's rolling around acting, you know, why don't you man up and, you know, sort of, and, yeah, loads of people experience football like that. They're just not necessarily the people that are on social media yelling about it, I guess. But it's very, you know, it's very hard to be all things to all people, isn't it, for something as, as massively mainstream as that. Yeah, Lineker seems to manage it, but uh, I think he's sort of out on his own at this yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, that it? has become, uh, you know... If it, if he wasn't already, this tournament has cemented him as as one of the nation's most important cultural figures, isn't it? I mean, it's his his flawless social media game, his present, his presenting, you know, the de facto leader of the opposition. I mean, there's you know, there there you can't say enough good things about him, can you? No, he's he's been superb. Uh, what about VAR? It's it's been pretty fun from a TV point of view, hasn't it? Do you think it's made watching games a little bit more fun having that element? I think it's it's going to really change the experience of watching football on TV, actually, and you could already see that. It seems to happen a bit more in the earlier matches of the World Cup. I guess that's just the way the sort of cookie crumbled. But there was two or three matches where you're like, I'm not actually watching football. This has become like Soccer Saturday style, watching someone else watch the TV, and then everyone talking about the TV, and everything's one step removed from the actual sport. And I, I don't know. I th- I mean, it's great for the arguing and the psychodrama of it and everyone getting incredibly cross. So, yeah, it's going to make it more soap opera-ish than it already is, which is either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your on your view. Depends how much you like nil-nils, really, doesn't it? Uh, overall, Alan, how will you remember this tournament in years to come? What TV moment or football TV trope sums it all up? I think it's been great that there's been, both BBC and ITV have had a, an actual live human woman doing punditry, and that's... They've both been really, really good. Telegraph Sports, Alex Scott and Enio Luco both done an excellent job. You know, the world is changing. People are able to accept that. Obviously, there's a few kind of Neanderthal-type people that are not going to be happy about that. But by and large, they've just been allowed to get on with their work, and that's great. It's been interesting to see Gary Neville out of his sort of tactics role a bit. That's been quite interesting. Yeah, overall, it's been good to see ITV, I think, close the gap on the BBC. It'll be interesting to see the numbers today. I mean... You'd expect the BBC to get about four to one, probably. But, you know, if ITV can chip away at that. And I, you know, I was watching a bit of the ITV stuff today and it was really good, you know. That competition's got to be healthy. We look forward to watching a lot more televised football on television when football returns, thank goodness, in about six hours. Yes, thank goodness for that. Well, that's it. We've done it. And so have you. It's the end of the World Cup and the end of season one of the Total Football Podcast. We'll be back with you in some form ahead of the Premier League season, which kicks off in about five hours and 58 minutes' time. Until then, please contact me on Twitter if you'd like to. It's at Tom with an H Gibbs. And subscribe to the podcast to make sure you're right at the front of the queue for a new episode very soon indeed. Our theme tune is called Right the Relation, and it's by the legitimately excellent band Polvo. Head to mergerecords.com to find out more about them. Some thank yous before we go. Thanks as ever to producer Abby Patterson, who has triumphed over the buttons week in, week out this year. She's been joined by assistant button manipulator Elliot Lampitt, who works with us every week to make Total Football sound as good as it possibly can. Sincere thanks to him for that. 
And thanks, of course, to you, the loyal podcast fans. It's been a real pleasure bringing Total Football to you every week this season and meeting a few of you in person at the Jeff Hurst Live Special before the World Cup. Thanks for your support and, of course, for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist Fund Managers.